You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom If it's Moitzai Shabbos, this must be Rizchadar Aiso. I'm Avram Kivalevich, and I'm here with Rabbi Yosef Gavriel Bechov, my good friend. And Rabbi Yosef Gavriel, uh, right after Shabbos, almost, Rabbi Yosef Gavriel sent me uh, an article that uh, I would call it an essay uh, from Rabbi Moshe Ben Chaim, uh, an essay that purports to deal with the the unrest, the protesting uh, that has been a result from the that that flowed from the result of George Floyd's uh, brutal death. And in this uh, essay, in this statement, this Rabbi Moshe Ben Chaim writes. And again, this is not Kivalevich talking. This is uh, this author, Moshe Ben Chaim, that Rabbi Bechaper has sent me his essay. Blacks must take a lesson. You're not murdered by the millions or persecuted. You have far greater resources, government assistance, and educational prospects than did the butchered Jews. The current black riots reveal a self-destructive mindset, an entitlement attitude that needed any excuse to loot, which long predated George Floyd and has nothing to do with seeking justice. With blacks killing each other five times more than whites, killing blacks, you see that you see the question. Ben Carson's success taught that skin color doesn't limit your future. Candace Owens teaches us that every human has a keen mind. Martin Luther King taught the same. God is colorblind. Every man is equal. The American dream awaits persons of any color. Blacks are no more entitled than any person. Blacks condemn themselves to a continued self-inflicted meager existence by not advancing education and not modifying their behavior to follow God's biblical laws of honesty, justice, equality, charity, and righteousness. Rabbi Bechaffer, stop me. I cannot go on reading this. You are stuffing this terrible racist screed down my throat. And if anybody tunes in and heard me, it was not me talking. And yet this was a uh, an editorial from someone who considers himself a very significant Jewish educator. Rabbi Bechaffer, you are... found on Amazon. Yes, and... and you... So it's basically, uh, the, the, one has to understand that uh, this guy is a, a racist. He's a, he's a racist because of my, on many levels. But... Uh, one of the major points is that he equates all blacks with the rioters and the looters. And so blacks in general as rioters and looters, which is basically sending us talking to all Jews on the basis of Bernie Madoff, right? Or people like that who have uh, caused uh, society grief and then calling all the Jews uh, shysters and tricksters and remember the old uh, Bagan rhymes with Fagan, uh, that type of, uh, and people do that. And uh, I, I don't understand why a person like this who seems to be somewhat intelligent is not capable of understanding well, doesn't judge an entire group based on a minority, even if you could think, if you think, and I don't know how you demonstrate this, that is a large minority. So this is, uh, that is what, what racism is all about. The additional aspect, which, which this fellow does not uh, address, we had a tombit here in, uh, in Yeshiva, which used to be our Samach, now called Torah's David, a Jew of color, as they call them. And uh, he, after the incident in Muncie, where there was this uh, uh, Jewish fellow, Rabbi Rottenberg, who was attacked by a machete, ultimately he died. The, um, for two weeks, they, the police in Ramapo 
followed this bachar around wherever he walked, going to shul in the morning, uh, other, I don't know, other places, but at least when he left campus to go to the meeting where he went to. So then they followed him. And before I, I read this week in the, the Wall Street Journal that uh, Tim Scott, who is a Republican senator uh, caller, he uh, has been stopped for uh, accused, and accused of, um, uh, of uh, pretending to be a senator. And his car also has been followed in the streets of Washington, D.C. because it's too fancy for the neighbor for, uh, and uh, uh, for a black person to be driving. It's going to the wrong neighborhoods. Jews don't usually have this problem. They're not usually profiled uh, for whatever reason. So I don't think that such a person has any conception of what people in that community face. Also, in terms of education, um, it's, uh, I think that, uh, here, I, I'm basically a socialist, but I think that in this case, the, uh, the uh, I'm not really a socialist, whatever, but the, in this case, the public education uh, uh, world has failed the black community because they have not succeeded in putting into place functional schools. And most Americans nowadays, except for Jews, do not pay for their education. They expect to receive it for free, and they are compelled to go to these schools. And what, is they, what are they supposed to do if the educational system, which is mostly run by whites, has failed them? Yes, quite a mouthful, Rabbi Bechoff. You're not going to get an argument from me. Um, I, uh, I would actually say that even what you're saying is, is, is not uh, strong enough. And I would say that I, uh, we have no right to judge uh, because we don't understand, like you say, what it's right, what it's like to be persecuted, what it's like to be followed, what it's like to fear the police. Um, and it is all, of course, a throwback to the great original sin of the United States, which is, of course, uh, bringing uh, slaves to this country and the mistreatment of those slaves and the fact that there has been um, the sense of superiority and entitlement, which has not been eradicated. Uh, one thing I read this week. Speaking that, of which, well, I said, my, my Chavrusa, going to your home, your home state, my Chavrusa told me, I don't know if it's true or not, you probably don't know either, but in Nashville, there was rioting, evidently. No, sorry, yes, in Nashville, there was rioting, evidently looting, and not in Memphis. They said the Chiluk is that Nashville has a Democratic mayor and Memphis has a Republican mayor. And therefore, there was a greater fear in Memphis than in Nashville? Was that what the point was? <laughs> I guess so. I guess Republicans know how to instill fear. I don't know. Well, look, you know, there have been articles um, about this. I actually want to talk about it from a little bit of a different perspective. Um, the first thing is like this. Um, I read something from Martin Luther King uh, that David Remnick wrote in The New Yorker. And that was that uh, King said this a number of months before he died. He said that looting is not an act of trying to take the store over. And it's not an act of trying to conquer. He felt that looting was an act of trying to shake up the majority. Looting was a way to indicate that things, there's a fire here. Now, he wasn't, Martin Luther King was not justifying what looting was about, but he was trying to explain where it was coming from. Now, obviously, there are going to be people that are going to give in to the worst parts of, their, of themselves, but it isn't so much I always wanted the sweater from that department store, or I wanted the drugs from that department store, or whatever it was. 
the looting itself is a is 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 a is a way to shock. Now, I never thought of it that way. You know, to me, it was uh, almost like, oh well, I'm with the peaceful protesters, but the looters, those are the ones that that we need to condemn. I'm definitely condemning any loss of life or property, but I think that there the the, the level of the hurt is so great. The level of the hurt is so intense that the actions that, that, that happen, I think, are, are very uh, – it's hard for us to gauge and understand them. Um, and and I, I, I understand the resentment and the, and the hurt of the store owners, and they are 100% correct in, in demanding justice. I also would want to say um, that I believe that there is still, as, as we've talked about, um, uh, obviously the, uh, there's issues – uh, on, on a major level in terms of total education of our community that needs to start from the bottom up. And I think that maybe, as you say, all the, it isn't just the police that need to be educated. I think all of us need a, a greater education in this area. Um, and uh, the sensitivity, uh, now, the sensitivity level is something that, as you know, um, what we're, re- what we're hearing about with the uptick of, of uh, anti-Semitic acts, we were hearing again about the aggression of the African American community towards us, and we weren't doing enough to understand what was behind it. Uh, and again, I'm not justifying any of those acts. I'm just saying we have to have a greater sensitivity as far as that goes. So I would actually go further than you in terms of, of condemning this fellow. And I, I understand from your research that they've taken this thing down. It's no longer, you can't even find it anymore, right? Other than uh, what somebody said. I'm sure you can find it in many places, but not in, a, it's our, the original website seems to be down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you, you know, I think uh, we're, we're getting back closer to home. Uh, probably uh, part of the problem in our Orthodox community is the fact, it goes back to the fact that our world is run by Russia Yeshiva and not by Rabbanim. And Russia Yeshiva are very, you know, we, well, I guess the older we get, the more we see how narrow the f- focus and how, uh, how am I looking, what word am I looking for? How um, close-minded the, the Russia Yeshiva are in terms of dealing with the greater issues confronting society. Yes, well, clearly the Rosh Hashivas, I'm talking about even the Manalim from kindergarten up. Look, this is, this is, this is an issue uh, of, of recognizing the Tzalma Lokim, which we can't just do lip service to when, when riots erupt. Uh, we have to do lip service to it all the time. Not lip, I'm sorry, we do much more than lip service all the time. We have to, uh, we have to entrench the idea of the feeling towards everyone in this world, the Dechiv that we have of Klal Yisrael, to the Bria, to everyone in society, and uh, and, and and really work for a, a society that moves beyond uh, any look of 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 skin color. It's completely antithetical to to Yiddishkeit, and uh, it has to be spoken you out. Know captures for me. This, I don't know when exactly the switch happened from the break kite of Slabodka to the narrow mindedness of Brisk, but. One thing which, uh, which which pinpoints to me the transition symbolically is Rav Whitner taking down the picture of Cook and putting up the picture of the Chazanish. 
I'm not sure if Rav Hutner really carried so much influence. He did happen to have some of the greatest brains. That time he did, in the 50s. Not the 50s, the you're 50s, right. He had, he had some of the greatest. Time was the place. It yeah. had a lot of great cap. We talked about the Novominsker in the past and Rav David Cohen, uh, others who have uh, Aaron Feldman, um, uh, Lichtenstein, a lot of people who have assumed, who assumed great leadership and teaching roles. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I heard from, you know, I heard from uh, people in the Novominsker's family that one of the reasons why the Novominsker was able to resist a lot of Rav Hutner's attitude was that he had such a strong backbone from home. Whereas everyone else, Rav Hutner did a lot in terms of pushing upon them this altar from Slavodka mindset where he was going to, uh, you know, control the way they looked at things. I mean, do you have an, a sense that Rav Hutner has somehow uh, um, his mindset or what he was trying to push somehow led to a uh, insular, uh, uh, insular attitude in the yeshiva world to the point of oh, on the contrary, I think as long as the Slavotka attitude was pushed, it was a positive. It would have led to much more break. Right? People like Rabbi David Cohen, people like Rabbi Freifen. I think at some point he switched out of it, and that is the emblem. It is. It is the emblem of that is that switch in the picture on his wall. Well, I don't know. To me, I would say, again, my risk is a little bit up here. I'm a big Chazanishnik uh, in a sense. I, I call myself Talmud Arab. I wrote under that pen name for many years when I was younger. I, I, I'm not Chazanishnik saying anything about Rav Kook or Chazanish. I'm saying something about the changing of the picture on the wall. You could have had both. <laughs> Okay, maybe. Look, I think you're reaching here for this. I don't know. Again, I question how much, again, most of the Talmudim from Rav Hutner who grew up sort of were mired in him. But, you know, look, if Rav Hutner was, was, was the example of a machanich of that day that wasn't sensitive. Was the machanich par excellence. What, I don't think I, I, right, I don't okay, think look, I look, we weren't alive then. I can't tell you, but I could tell you that you're right. They're Talmudim, the people who ran these shivas in the 50s and 60s and 70s. I came to Nerius Row and I was taught to hate black people, okay? I was taught by my rebellion how terrible they were, how animalistic they were. I came from the South. I actually grew up the last three or four years before I went to yeshiva. I was in a, a community that the Jews had left, and I was the only uh, Jew, and in many ways, only, only white little boy in the neighborhood. And I uh, enjoyed myself immensely. Why did the Kibbalevitz family stay so long? <laughs> Let me get to the good part, then I'll get to the part that's a little bit strange. The good part is, is that I enjoyed playing football. Of course, I wasn't as good <laughs> as my friends were, but I would speak with them, play football with them. They would, uh, they would ask me. Again, I had a great, great relationship with my African-American uh, cohorts. They all wanted to have Jewish names. They said, what name would I have if I was Jewish? What name would you give me? And uh, we had a lot of fun. And um, my, my father took me often uh, into the African. I was in the African-American neighborhood. My father took me deep into the, into the neighborhood and I spent a, a lot of time um, palling around and, and, and having uh, African-American friends when I was growing up. I came to Yeshiva, and there my rabbeim, uh spoke to me about the, the, the inherent animalistic aspect 
of what it of, of the African American community, and because Nerysro, as you know, had just recently moved into that beautiful building that we both uh, were there on that campus from Garrison, and and they all talked about in Garrison uh, what sort of war zone that was, how everybody was um, attacked and assaulted, and uh, again that was the yeshivish mindset, and terms like Schwarze were said all the time. You don't want to be like the Schwarzes, like the Schwarzes, like the Schwarzes. And it was, it, it got to a point that it, that poison had infected me as well. I, Baruch Hashem, I was able to spew it out. I was able to, ex- you know, now, why my family, I know you always like digging over here, and of course, you don't play fair, because when I try doing the other stuff, you become very evasive. But I'm the host of the show, and I guess I have to be more open than you. So I will tell you that uh, my parents were looking for the house. My father was always saying, no, it's not. This one's not good enough. This one's not good enough. Again, my dad, we're talking about taking a huge chunk of change out and, and buying something, you know, more than, that was more than ten fifteen thousand $15,000, you know. We were living in this shack, you know, that we owned, but the, moving out east and moving to a big house I remember going with my parents often on Sundays and looking at stuff. And a lot, a lot of the houses, you know, my dad didn't want to uh, pony up for, for the house that had problems. I'm going to speak well for my father and say, that, however, one of his main concerns was he wanted the whole, most of the house on one floor. Because my grandmother, Lashom, who lived with us, was having a hard time navigating steps. He wanted to make sure that she had a, a, a complete bedroom on the first floor with her own bathroom to be mechabit her. So because of that, we stayed, everybody else moved out. And for years, you know, I was there. Was it I was dangerous? Of, was it dangerous? Um, to well, to well the there was the shul basically left. It was just a, a, a house minion uh, that had some older people. I was the um, official, uh, but when I was 13, I became like the rabbi of that shul because um, my brother was already in Shiva. And there was no, and the older men there, um, they couldn't lane the Torah. So I basically laned every Shabbos and davened over there. And that was for, uh, you know, a couple of years till I went away to Yeshiva. So that, that show, after I went to Yeshiva, maybe lasted for a couple more months, then it closed down. But, um, uh, so we did go to show. We did not have uh, Mincha services. We had, uh, uh, Shachris services on Shabbos. And if you ask me if it was dangerous, um, my father over Shalom used to tell me uh, to always wear a baseball cap in the street. Um, and I was worried many times when I went to certain neighborhoods that I, I would not wear, I didn't take my yarmulke off. I mean, I didn't go headless without a cap at all. But we, there was a sense that if you, if you wore your yarmulke, uh, you probably would be, something would happen. But that could happen in any, you know, in a white neighborhood as well. Um, so I wouldn't say it was particularly dangerous. Uh, and I got to be honest, there was aspects that were probably, um, many people, if they hear about him, would be shocked. But there were, um, there was a lot of uh, drunkenness that occurred on weekends. Um, there were people who, um, you know, my father treated them very, very kindly, but there were people who came to our house uh, Friday night by Kiddush, and um, they were clearly inebriated or, or had a tremendous desire to become inebriated. 
Uh, I remember distinctly when I was around nine or ten. Why did they come to your house? They came to our house because my father was the landlord of a number of slum apartments. And they came to our house because they figured Mr. K has some money and Mr. K can advance them some money so they can go and you know, buy provisions that they needed. And the provisions primarily, I have to tell you, were liquor. And there was a lot of getting liquored up that did occur. Uh, on, I remember one Shabbos afternoon before everybody moved out, but we were, it was only, you know, I was about eight or nine and, uh, the house right behind us, my father, we had a little, uh, apartment that my father rented out to an African-American family. And I remember the wife of the African-American family came to our back door screaming. And, um, when we went, uh, when I, uh, we went to see what it was. Uh, their names were the Lacys. They lived in in, in our backyard. Uh, they rented the apartment. You have an amazing memory, I must say. Oh, okay. <laughs> I so, would never remember a name like that. Okay. Well, yeah. uh, the Lacys, they lived in our backyard. And they lived in that the house. That was a compliment, by the way. I, okay. That was a compliment. I, okay. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Sometimes this memory is a curse. But anyway, so when I go, when, we, when I went back there, I saw, uh, I saw Mr. Lacy and his son, Mr. Lacey had a stab wound uh, that, and, and his son was standing holding a knife and uh, it was a very, very, a very vivid memory of, of what was going on there. And, um, th- you know, I remember my father, uh, they, she came running to my father to, to break it up. And my dad came and, and, and broke up this fight between this father and son and the son had already stabbed his father. So, well, you're, you're, you're far, obviously it's was held in esteem by these people. Right. My father was very, my father incredibly did not have a racist bone in his body. and was actually, actually appreciated um, the African-American community that sort of gave him Parnosa. You know what I'm saying? Um, And he routinely uh, did not take rent, but he worked out a system. So for example, if there was a family that could not pay the rent, um, the wife of the family would come and do uh, housework for us. Or if there was someone who couldn't pay rent, my father would uh, have the person do some work on other buildings. And with that way, he would be able to pay it off. Uh, in fact, my dad, uh, Shalom, uh was able to, uh, when we moved finally, he sold that house uh, to a, a very nice African-American fellow that used to work on his cars. And uh, when he couldn't get a mortgage, my father took the mortgage on himself. Instead of making him go to the bank, my father told him, look, you'll pay what you can, and uh, that'll work. So what I'm trying to say is is that I think I come from a city and a family that... Was your father an exception? Was your father an exception, obviously, living in the Deep South? Was your father an exception to the rule, or are there the Jews generally were got along? Look, I would say, look, it was the 60s, and we definitely heard uh, a lot of racial epithets. My dad was not a big fan of social protest. He did not believe in that. And, and, and when, when I remember when Martin Luther King died, he was very concerned uh, about violence uh, that would occur. He, he did not have the attitude that I had in the beginning of this program, understanding where that came from. I'm, I'm not going to try to whitewash. However, that was a byproduct. Again, remember, uh, he of his age and where he came from, 
But I think at least he was able to plant the attitude with me in a young age that I think I was able to live with uh, up until this time. And what I'm saying is, I, if people are listening to this, that that was in 19 in the, in, in the mid and early 60s, and, and, and we need to at least have a, a, a much more than that today. We have to have an understanding and a recognition. A Rachmanis. My father, I remember saying, That's what my dad said. He didn't say these people are animals. He didn't say these people look what they've done with their lives. He said, And uh, I never heard him. This. Okay. So, Rabbi Yosef, um, next no, time you'll no. tell me about what it was like. In, you'll tell me what it was like. In, no, it was nothing. It was boring. White bread. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 